Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel overchurched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The word of God for the people of God. It reminds me, just this past Friday, a couple of days ago, uh, I'm the, my name is Rich, by the way. He, him, is the pastor of the Inclusive Collective. Just this past Friday, we had worship, and we were using ashes um, for a ritual. And I realized in the middle of worship that we didn't have any ashes. And so I knew I had some in my office. So I go up to the 19th floor of our building, get the ashes. But you need oil to mix with ashes. And so then I sprint to Roti, which is a block away, ask them for oil, mix ashes in the middle of the restaurant, and then bring them back for worship. And we had plenty of time. So not taking those improv classes at Second City for nothing. Uh, friends, it's great to be with y'all. I haven't been to this site in a while. Uh, the last time I was here, y'all were at um, Bethany, um, still in Andersonville. So this is a really cool space. Uh, and I'm glad to be here, excited to see some familiar faces and lots of new folks uh, as well. So thanks for letting me be with y'all um, this morning. I guess you didn't really have a choice. So thanks for not leaving. 
Um, but I am the pastor of the Inclusive Collective. I'm also a member of Urban Village and have been for about five years. Uh, I worked at UVC for a year doing a residency program and then uh, moved to the Inclusive Collective. Uh, I am uh, also right now uh, on the search team for the new site pastor. And so um, I know there's some representatives here too. But um, if you have anything uh, to say about that or any suggestions or ideas, please catch me um, today. I'll be hanging out at the service and let me know about thoughts you have or, um, or ways we can do that in a way that honors who our community as a whole is and that we want to be as transparent and accountable to the people uh, of our community as possible. And then after this, uh, we'll mill around a little bit, have some coffee, and then we'll gather back in here, probably in the, that back, back couple of rows of chairs, uh, to have a conversation about the Inclusive Collective. If you haven't heard of us, I'd love for you to come and learn a little bit more. Um, if you have but want to know more, come. Um, if you're a student here today um, also, so it's, it's both for people who want to know more about us, who could partner with us, as well as people who are students around the area who could be involved with us. And so I'd love to see you um, there after the service. Would y'all pray with me? God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you and acceptable to you, be aligned with who you are and the people you are calling us to be. And God, when they are not, remind us that you are a God of countless chances, always welcoming us back with open arms to you, to your will, and to your way. Amen. Has anyone here heard or read of um, Brian Stevenson? Show of hands. I see if several people. Okay, okay. He wrote the book Just Mercy, and that's probably what he's most famous for these days. Um, but he is an acclaimed author, and he's also the founder of what's called the Equal Justice Initiative, the Equal Justice Initiative. Stevenson tells a story often whenever he speaks at, at lectures, or writes, and it's a story about when he visited Germany a few years ago. And he went to Germany, and everywhere he went with his crew of people, he noticed that whether they were in a small town, a rural village, a large city, everywhere he went in Germany, there were innumerable markers or monuments um, for the Holocaust. Places that everywhere, statues and memorials and buildings and markers and art everywhere. And so he asked some of his German friends who were with him on this trip as they traveled around, why do you have so many of these? Why are they literally everywhere? Why do they dot the landscape everywhere I go? And his German friends looked at him sort of uh, surprised by his question because they thought the answer was pretty obvious. And they basically said, Brian, don't you understand that if a society is not going to repeat the same mistakes, that you have to acknowledge the past. You have to acknowledge it in an open way. And so in Germany, so many places that had been death factories have been transformed into memorials or monuments that point the people to a new day. And Stevenson's mind uh, raced and went immediately back to the U.S., to his context. He lives here in Montgomery, Alabama. And he wondered if one of the reasons why our country is still plagued and infected with racism that is so pervasive, if one of the reasons is because we have failed to deal with racism and our nation's horrific history with racism in a very public, loud way. And Stevenson is a lawyer who specializes in overturning death penalty cases. So his imagination went to something specific about our nation's history of racism lynching. 
Between 1877 and 1950, over 4,400 black men, women, and children were murdered by white mobs in over 800 counties in this country. And Stevenson researched and researched and researched and was convinced that somewhere in this country, somewhere in some place, there must be a major memorial or monument to those who had been lynched. And to no surprise, he found nothing. And so he began to imagine what one could look like. What would it look like to build this and create this experience? And in April 2018, after countless amounts of work and effort and fundraising and risk-taking by Stevenson and a large team, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened in Montgomery, Alabama, the heart of the American South, where most of these lynchings happened. The Roots, Usher, Kirk Franklin, Michelle Alexander, Marion Wright Edelman, William Barber, Aver DuVernay, all of these people gathered there to celebrate and mark the opening of this remarkable monument. Has anyone seen pictures or been? I see a few hands. Uh, on six acres overlooking Montgomery, 800 columns hang from the ceiling of this outdoor monument, representing the counties where the lynchings took place. And inscribed on these uh, concrete beams that, that hang down are the names, the known names, of those who were lynched. And the monument also includes soil samples from all the counties. And Stevenson said this about the soil samples. In this soil, there is the sweat of the enslaved. In this soil, there is the blood of victims of racial violence and lynching. There are tears in this soil from all who labor under the indignation and humiliation of segregation. But in this soil, there is the opportunity for new life, a chance to grow something hopeful and healing for the future. Christianity in many ways is about the movement from the cross, a place intentionally designed to inflict death and to deal shame it's about the movement from the cross to resurrection, a powerful experience that brings new life. And I'm convinced that this Easter claim is not stuck in the first century. Jesus' movement from cross to resurrection is a model, a blueprint, a naming of a reality that exists all around us and is in fact woven into the fabric of all of creation. Think about it. When we eat plants, they were alive in the ground, they die to feed us and they power us with new life. We have 300 million cells in the body that die every single minute, but our resilient bodies produce new ones to replace them. With the seasons, life flourishes in the summer, begins to wilt in the fall, dies in the winter, dies really hard in the winter here, and is reborn in the spring, cross to resurrection, death to life, is all over the place. And the National Memorial for Peace and Justice seeks to be caught up in that movement from death to life. It's taking a place where people were literally killed and shamed and transforming them into monuments that amplify the voices of those who were meant to be silenced. The memorial, it makes us take a long, hard look at yesterday and today in the hopes of imagining a new tomorrow. In a city that was known, that was famous even, for the lynching of black people, some of our country's most powerful black artists and intellectuals and change agents gathered on April 26, 2018, 
to proclaim that the lives of those lynched matter, that black lives matter today, and they invited us to envision a new future that we can co-create together. That, friends, is on the ground movement from death to life. In the passage that Kelly read on the spot a few moments ago, we find God instructing the Hebrew people on how to move from death to life. And our text, if you, if you listen closely, it, it, it sounds, it's not, a, it's not a gentle text. God's not playing it nice. And it sounds more like an indictment. And God is speaking to the Hebrew people through the prophet Isaiah. And oftentimes, I think when we, when we think about what prophet means, uh, images of fortune tellers are, are sort of what we conjure up in our minds. But actually, for, in the Bible, what prophet means is more like truth teller than fortune teller. Because the prophets believed that they could break through to the, to, the, to the people, speak a hard word of truth, and that their words could cause real change to happen. The setting of this passage in Isaiah is likely around the, the 6th century BCE, and many of the Hebrew people have been living in exile in Babylon, away from their home territory, their homeland, the place that they knew and the place where they were comfortable. And they've been moving from there to, to an exile, and some of them have started to return to their homeland and trickled in bit by bit, but they are not happy with what they're experiencing. The text says they fasted and they prayed, seeking an answer to their troubles. They feel dead. And so they cry out to God, hey, God, why do we fast? You don't even seem to look our way. Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even seem to notice? And God offers them a response via Isaiah. Well, you ignore the Sabbath and you never let anyone rest. You do fast, but you bicker and you fight about it. You even swing fists at one another, hitting one another. You show off your so-called humility and you parade around with pious faces. Do y'all think that's really what I want? God offers this blistering critique of the way the Hebrew people had been practicing faith. They had strayed from their core. The Hebrew people had forgotten what it means to live into God's good dream for the world. And God lets them know in no uncertain terms that showy religion full of arrogance is not the way forward. God outlines the way this faith community had failed. These folks feel dead. And God gives them a blunt and honest autopsy report. These days, I hear God also giving us a pretty blunt an honest autopsy report. The church is dying, everyone says. And God says, well, let me tell you why. I hear this autopsy report through folks I work with in the Inclusive Collective. Every week, I have coffee after coffee after coffee, and I get the same conversations again and again and again. And some of the most powerful and painful ones I have are about the church. I'm queer, why does the church hate me? I have a lot of doubts. Why does the church suppress my questions? I'm passionate about social justice. Why is the church always on the wrong side of progress? And these questions aren't new for many of you in this space. They're ones you've asked or had asked to you. Particularly in this church, we know the pain that these questions carry. 
But we don't only get the autopsy report from personal conversations. Researchers across this country do study after study after study to figure out why folks are leaving the church and they get the same results often again and again and again. How do people view the church? Well, as judgmental, boring, hypocritical, anti-LGBTQ, sheltered, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, confusing and exclusive. Great list, right? (laughs) Studies we read, but more importantly and more personally, stories that we can tell function as indictments of the American Christian church, often the white church in particular. And these stories and studies show us why death runs rampant in the church. They show us why 36% of 18 to 24-year-olds describe their religion as nothing in particular and why more than 3,500 churches shut their doors every single year. God has handed us the autopsy report. Here's the good news. You want some good news? Here's the good news is that God doesn't stop there. God has given us the autopsy report and God doesn't just give it to us and then drop the mic and walk away and say, good luck. In Isaiah, we see God instructing the Hebrew people on how to live differently, on how to move from death to life. God reminds them what it means to live uh, the fullness, that, uh, the full life that God has created them for. God reminds them of what it means to live abundantly and fulfill God's good dream for the world. And so God commands them, you heard the text, work for justice. Share your food with the hungry. Give away clothes. Invite the homeless into your home. Give yourselves to the down and out. Then your lives will begin to light the darkness. You will be full and meaningful. You'll be like a well-watered garden or a spring that never runs dry. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate and make the community pulse with life again. Isaiah 58 sure begins with this heavy-handed critique of who the people currently are, but it ends with this heavy dose of hope regarding who the people can be People aren't stuck. And God reminds them that they are more than their worst failures. And with God's help, they can be about something different. They can be people who rebelled and renovate and create something new. They will be people who are agents of God's transformation. They can awaken new possibilities and move from death to life. And in the same way, I hear God calling us to new possibilities to move from death to life. And we've seen the autopsy report. Hell, in this church, many of us have lived the autopsy report. We have a clear picture of the church's failures. Our temptation in more progressive faith spaces, and as a UVCer, our temptation, I think, at UVC, if we're not careful, can be to point our fingers at other Christians and relieve ourselves of any responsibility. But that simply won't suffice. Instead, we must ask God to propel us forward, to help us, the church in all of its diverse forms, become a relevant and creative force in society, to commit to creating a church that looks more and more like Jesus. Like the Hebrew people from Isaiah, God desires to use all of us as people who rebelled and renovate and create something new. But we can't do those things if all we do is complain. It's easy to critique the church and to blame other people, but that's not enough. 
And to be clear, lamenting is powerful, and there is goodness in lament to confess the sins of the church. But part of repentance, to use a good church word, also means moving in a new direction. We must wrestle with the question of how we create something new. As Michelangelo once said, critique by creating, critique by creating. Father Richard Rohr says it this way, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. So how do we go from getting it wrong to getting it right? How do we help the church become more and more like Jesus? How will we critique by creating instead of being content to critique by complaining? Y'all, I'm weary of being in spaces and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. I'm weary of this in myself for being in spaces where all we do is blame other Christians for our problems and spend a lot of time whining. Well, if that preacher wasn't on TV spouting so much hate, people wouldn't hate the church so much. But do you know the best way to offer an alternative to the gospel of hate? It's to grab the microphone and find creative and risk-taking ways to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that promises deep and vibrant connection to God, true justice, equity, and inclusion, and the flourishing of all people in creation. And that gospel is not trapped anywhere, but that gospel has been let loose in the world. May we live like that's actually true. May we live like we wanna be people who move from death to life. And why do I care so much? Why do I want us to see us create fresh expressions of the church? Because in the midst of the church's many, many, many failures, the church has also been the, the community that God has used to forever change and shape me and transform me. The church is where I first heard the call to pursue justice, the first place where I felt known and loved. It's where I continue to find my voice, where risk-taking and even failure have been affirmed, where I gain the courage to live as my true self, where I encounter God in ways that shake up my whole life, where I see people fueled and inspired to make God's dream a little bit more real, a dream where all people flourish. Inclusion is the norm. Equity happens and justice flows like a never-ending stream. But the thing is, though, friends, that, that this, this new life, this new path, forging a new path, creating something new, moving from death to life is no easy task. It will require us <clears throat> to embrace courage and take risk, to refuse the status quo, and to do things in ways they've never been done before. And why do I believe that courage and risk-taking are key to this move from death to life. Again, at least part of my reason is personal. I've seen that courage and risk have been the only ways forward for me. Freedom, freedom, freedom. I prayed this word relentlessly and emphatically for months and months, hoping that freedom would become more than a word, but become an experience I toss up this word to God daily, hoping for a response. I long for God to move and for freedom to feel real and true. And why freedom? Well, I had lived much of my life in the fetal position, the polar opposite of freedom. Growing up gay and closeted and Christian in rural Mississippi, as you may imagine, was no walk in the park. 
It had given me potent and powerful skills, namely the ability to suppress and hide a key part of who I was, even for myself at times. And as I perfected those gifts at suppressing and hiding, I crawled into the fetal position and often was scared and timid. I didn't always stay there. And sure, I had glimpses of freedom, but I was far too familiar with life in the fetal. In so many ways, I felt like I was holding my breath often like I was almost dead. I had a strong hunch though, a strong hunch that God had more on offer than that. I believe that God wanted me to live with arms stretched wide with the wind at my back with liberation. So I prayed, freedom, freedom, freedom. In many days, I would finish my prayer and think, well, not much happened here. You ever been there? But one day while sitting in my chair in in an Ikea chair that probably took way too long to put together, God moved. And on that day in 2015, while I was still a a mostly closeted gay man, I whispered my freedom refrain, freedom, freedom, freedom. And suddenly my body felt light, physically light. And I heard God say in an almost almost audible voice, hey, it's okay. I've got you. It is the strangest, most mystical thing that I've ever experienced. But maybe also uh, the truest experience. And in that moment, I felt a surge of power and joy and verve pulsing through my body like never before. The Holy Spirit was coursing through my veins and I felt alive. I felt like I could really breathe again for the first time in a long time. The closet had been a death-dealing and shaming place for me, held me back. It's the person God created me to be and peddled lies to me about myself and about God. But thanks be to God, I moved from those lies to the truth, free and light and liberated. And I've still got some scars and I still get wounds from time to time. I don't always live that freely. But, but I still, uh, living as my full self has been an incredible gift And through it, I've experienced incredible freedom, liberation, power, new life. I've been reciting this story to myself a lot lately. Why? Because our ancestors in the faith often set up monuments to remember what God has done in the path and a way to inspire their future work. My story serves as that for me, a sort of narrative monument that reminds me of God's goodness in the past to propel me and to give me courage for God's work in the future. And I've been recalling that story because I feel my courage waning a little bit. And I wonder often, uh, can I really do what God has called me to do? What if I fail? What if, uh, can I really take these risks? I'm not sure. What if I mess it all up? And in these days of so much struggle and constant change and of division, courage can wane and retreating can feel easy. I'm not always sure I have the courage to do what God has called me to do. But the good news is that I don't have to because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. 
And I look back on my story and I see the ways that God has moved and I remember that God provided, that God provided before and God will provide now and God will provide in the future. And the only question that remains is, will I embrace the courage God actively offers it, offers us and channel it to make God's dream for our world into reality? Will I embrace that courage? What about you? I hope we do embrace that courage and take risk because I have a strong hunch again that God has more on offer for us and for this church than rearranging chairs on the Titanic. God is actively inviting us to play a role in reforming the church and changing the world that is in desperate need of healing and hope and justice. And this type of work doesn't just happen through, through low-risk tweaks or tiny changes in programs. It happens through bold, decisive, risky action. God is calling us to do no less than to usher in life where there is death. And we will not rise to the equation by playing it safe and maintaining the status quo. I'm not interested in maintaining the status quo. This church was founded on that same line of thinking that we are not interested in maintaining the status quo and we will do things differently and we will create a community that people need. God is not interested in maintaining the status quo either. God is interested in a revival, an awakening that will forever reshape the church, this country, the world, and you and me. I know our church is going through a lot of changes in this particular time, but friends, I invite us all to hold on because God wants to do something new and exciting and fresh with us that will literally move us from death to life. Other people, the city, our world. The beautiful and scary news is that God is inviting us right now to play a role in that revival, to play a role in that awakening, to embrace courage, to take risks, to critique by creating, to move from death to life. Yes, God is inviting us, and the only question you have to answer is this, are you in? Amen.